0: Think of the most intense person that you know of. Who's the most intense person that you know of? I'm looking at one person. Um, I've been told that I'm a little intense at times. Everyone's shaking their head that knows me. Uh, it's, and what's weird is that oftentimes they present it like it's a bad thing. I think it's a very good thing to be a little intense. But intensity is really interesting because intensity reveals what someone is truly passionate about. Like you will never meet an intense person and be like, I don't know what they care about, right? Intensity brings something up. There's an unwavering dedication that someone has, right? There's a commitment to making things right. You will know what hobbies or people or career that an intense person is all about, right? You don't have to worry about if you meet an intense person. And I like to think that I'm a little intense, but I think it's a good thing because I'd rather be intense than passive. Am I right? I'd rather be intense about the things that matter. Sometimes you guys can tell me and you guys often do, and that's all right. I'm open book. You can tell me, Hey, Kurt, turn it down a notch or two, maybe 10. That's fine. But I'd rather be intense than passive because when you see things that matter, not get thought for, not get changed or not get dealt with, that's a bigger problem than a little intensity and so one of the problems is that the passivity that's happening just watching our community go to whatever is happening without intensity and passion we have to attack things am i right what i love about this church is even outside of our body so many of you are active and making our community a place where people know Jesus, know the love of God and can heal and can, and can become whole. And so I love it, I love it. Hey, let's give a round of applause, I'm serious. The people that have given their life, what we see in this series, we're in this series called The Way of Jesus. And we see that Jesus is gonna be intense about a couple things and it's gonna come on strong. And what we're gonna see is that this intensity is going to reveal God's heart because it's going to come intensely, okay? And so what we see is that there's lessons that we are supposed to get. And his intensity, Jesus' intensity, is towards religion, okay? His his intensity is towards the religious leaders. Jesus didn't go after the Roman government. He didn't go after pagans. He goes after the religious leaders and he says, you are not getting it. And he's saying, you're supposed to be pointing all things to God, but you're not. And we're going to see that he's passionate about setting up the religious order the way that it was meant to be. So if you have your Bibles, Mark 11. We're in Mark 11. We're powering through. Last week, we talked about this. Jesus is heading to Jerusalem. Okay? You remember he was in Caesarea Philippi. He's been walking this way. And the disciples are astonished. And they're afraid we talked about this last week why were they astonished and they were afraid because jesus had told them what's about to go down in jerusalem they may not have known everything but they know it's not good okay and so obviously i would have been like surprised and kind of fearful okay and the disciples of that and james and john were like hey i want to sit at the right and the left of your glory and jesus like you don't know what you're asking for He's like if you want to be great you have to what serve. If you want to be first, you have to be last. This is all messing with the disciples. And now they've reached Jerusalem. Marty spoke uh, on uh, Palm Sunday, so a couple months ago. So we're not going to go through that. But Jesus enters in the triumphant entry. You can go back on redeemed.church and watch that. And now we see this. Jesus is in Jerusalem. He comes in, and where does he go? He goes to the temple courts, and he looks around doesn't say anything. And he walks back and he goes to Bethany. Okay. So he's in Bethany now. And now we are in the next day. Okay. Everyone on the same page. Cause the context is important. All right. And now we see this Mark 11, 12 through 14, the next day as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. Seeing doesn't that just make Jesus so human. I love that. Jesus was hungry. I get it. Seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to find out if it had any fruit. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves because it was not the season for figs. Then he said to the tree, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard him say it. Now what's going on here? This is a confusing story, okay? There has to be context that has to. You can be like, dang, that's a little harsh, Jesus. You know, it's like the tree didn't do anything wrong. You know, I have wanted to, I cursed a tree in the last two weeks. I I tried to, at least I was playing frisbee with my boys and I was in barefoot and I stubbed my toe on a tree root. Okay. And it was one of those things where you hit your shin or you stub your toe. It does not matter if you're a pastor or not. Every bad word wants to come out of your mouth. You know what I'm talking about? And you're holding it in because you're like, I am a pastor and my kids are right here, but everything wanted to curse the tree. And yet... The tree did nothing wrong. The tree has been there for hundreds of years. I am yet a little blink on the dot of this tree's <laughs> existence, right? It's just a root. And what we see is that I had some words for the tree, even though it didn't anything wrong. But what's going on? Because why is Jesus so cruel to this poor little tree? What is happening? Jesus is operating out of one of his positions. One of his positions is profit, okay? One of his ways he is, is prophet. And we see that the fig tree is to enact a parable. He's enacting a parable. He is using symbolic actions towards this tree to show what life is supposed to look like. And we see this that he's saying there's going to be a conflict between Christ, me, and the religious leaders. From a distance, Jesus saw a fig tree with full green foliage. Why is that important? If you know how this works, it's actually important that it had leaves on it because the fig works this way. There should be small edible buds of fruit that come before the leaves, okay? And so we know that this is the time of Passover. It's probably mid-April, okay? So we know this about – we're really digging into this fig tree. Am I right? But in the middle of the month of April in Palestine, fig trees produce crops of these small edible buds – First was the appearance of these buds, and then the big leafy greens would have come in April. So we see that this early fruit would have been this common thing that peasants would have eaten. But we see a tree with no buds. There is no fruit on the trees. And since Jesus says, I see nothing but leaves, he knew it was an absolutely hopeless fig tree okay there was no fruit that was going to come from this tree again he was acting out a parable and this picture is of religion he's looking at religion he's like this tree appears like it should have fruit it has big leafy green leaves we should be enjoying some fruit but he goes in and he begins to peel back the leaves and he finds what nothing Fig trees are often a symbol in the Hebrew scriptures for the nation of Israel, for the religious leaders. And each time it's God saying to Israel's religion, it's either you're bearing fruit or you're barren. Okay. So when he talks about the fig tree, it's like you're bearing fruit or you are barren. Okay. We see it in Jeremiah eight 13. Let's throw it up. I will take away their harvest, declares the Lord. There will be no grapes on the vine. There will be no figs on the tree and their leaves will wither. What I have given them will be taken from them a picture of religion. All right. Jeremiah is speaking to leaders and the people, particularly in the region of Judah and throughout his prophecies. He's like, look, look, you on the outside look like you're thriving. There are crowds in your temple, especially around Passover. There's crowds that are happening. They have God's word. They have the law, they worship, and they offer all kinds of sacrifices. They have prayer and they have offerings and they have celebrations. They have all the religious activities that you could imagine, but the Lord declares that something's missing. What's missing. He's God is missing. Is that possible? Is that possible today? Can we have crowds? Like literally, could we redeem, explode to 3,000 people? Maybe that's a little bit much. Maybe let's say 100 people. But let's say we explode to 100 people and we could just be having all the things. We could be going through the motions, but God would be missing from it. I believe that it could. There is no fruit, it says. God wants religion to produce fruit. There should have been fruit. But what they see is that the fig tree and the vineyard are going to be gone and they're destroyed to make room for a plant or a field that will truly bear fruit. Mark 11, the story of the fig tree is a picture of religion, this dramatic thing of what's about to happen. And Jesus is going to get angry because there's no figs. It's not because he's hangry. Okay? I would get get mad because I get a little hangry. Some of us get more hangry than others. I can name names of people that get hangry but he goes and he's hungry, but there's no fruit. Mark 11, 15 through 17 on reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple. He's going to go in the temple area. He entered the temple courts and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, and as he taught them, he said, it is not, is it not written? My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it, what? A den of robbers. Now in the temple, there's a couple things going on. There is this thing called the sacred enclosure. Within it, within the sacred enclosure, there's like things like the holy place and the holy of holies, right? There's the court for the priests. There's all kinds of things that are happening in the sacred enclosure. And outside the sacred enclosure, is the court of the Gentiles. So this is where Jesus is. We find Jesus in this larger outside court. And the high priests have allowed for this market to take place. What we see is that there is a place for the sale of ritual sacrifices, all right? So people are coming from a really far way away and they're coming and they'll buy the sacrifice that they need. And so they've set up this marketplace for people to do that. In addition, there were money exchangers. Why were there money exchangers? Well, we see that there were three currencies that were happening in the day. There was the Roman currency, there was the provincial uh, currency, and then there was the Jewish uh, coins, all right? So there was the Jewish money. And the temple tax would have to be paid. So you would have to pay a temple tax. Now what happened was you could not use Roman or provincial money because why? There was a face on it. It would have been idolatrous for you to use that. So you had to convert this money to Jewish money. Now, why is this important? It all makes sense why the high priest is allowing this. But what we see is that there was fraud that was happening within the exchange of money. So as people were coming to buy sacrificial elements and to exchange money, people were like, I'm going to bring more money. I'm going to make sure that I get mine. And Jesus is like, no, 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 no. And what we see is not only were people buying things, but within the temple area, there were people that were taking shortcuts through this court. This is what Jesus is seeing. And this is what makes Jesus mad. All right. Jesus comes with passion and it's targeted towards religion. He says the temple has become something that it was never meant to be. Let's go back to 2 Chronicles. What was it meant to be? who doesn't love when we go back to second chronicles, right? You don't hear that very often. Second Chronicles, let's open it up. Second Chronicles 7, uh th- 1 through 3. When Solomon had finished praying, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices. And the glory of the Lord filled the temple. The priests could not enter the temple of the Lord because the glory of the Lord filled it. When all the Israelites saw the fire coming down and the glory of the Lord above the temple. They knelt on the pavement with their faces on the ground and they worshiped and gave thanks to the Lord saying, he is good. His love endures forever. The temple is complete. Solomon has just completed the, the temple and we see that it is now what? It's Holy ground. The Lord is active there. And when people saw God's presence and his goodness and his love that endures forever, it overwhelmed them. It should overwhelm us. In that moment, they knelt on the pavement. They got on their knees. They went face down on the ground and they worshiped and they gave thanks and they responded that way to his covenantal faithfulness. Faithfulness but what Jesus finds is religion. The temple was meant to look like that. And Jesus comes and he finds a business that's operating. Could we church be just an organization and a business that's operating and completely miss what God is trying to do? Because God's presence is what restores all things. And when we feel his presence, when we experience his presence, when we know his goodness, when we know his love, We respond how? Because we could really easily respond religion. Mark 11, we see there's no awe. There's no one on their face. There's no one in holy fear. And so there's a marketplace and there's a bank that's committing fraud and people are using it as a shortcut. Jesus gets intense and gets passionate. But you can see why. He wouldn't let people go through. And he says this. He quotes from Isaiah 56:7. These I will bring to my holy mountain and give them joy in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. The temple was meant to be a house of prayer for all nations. Here, Isaiah is saying there's going to be a time when the Jews and the Gentiles are worshiping together and it's a house of prayer for all mankind and Jesus is making this happen. You see it? Isaiah warns God's people against the dangers of abandoning God, of faithlessness and of what fruitlessness. They completely missed it. They could be like a leafy green fig tree with no buds. Back to Mark 11, because we're going to get back to the fig tree. So we went fig tree to temple. Let's go back to the fig tree. The chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this and began looking for a way to kill kill him, for they feared him, because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. When evening came, Jesus and his disciples went out of the city. In the morning, as they went along, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots. Peter, of course, always Peter and Mark. Remembered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. Have faith in God, Jesus answered. Truly I tell you, if anyone says to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea and does not doubt in their heart, but believes that what they said will happen, it will be done for them. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive them so that your Father in heaven may forgive your sins. This is kind of weird. It's just the fig tree. The fig tree's withered. He's just overthrown the temple. He's not talking about that. He talks about faith. He talks about faith. He had just acted these two parables out. And he's turning to this vital component for each of us to understand is faith. You have to have unwavering trust in God's ultimate power and his ultimate goodness. Faith is not something that we should take lightly. These verses for me are something that I can struggle with and I have to deal with in my heart. These can be abused verses as well, right? Do you guys feel that? So, with the context of what he's trying to say, he's trying to say, I do not want to come and see people or see a church that looks like religion and has no faith. So, I'm going to define what faith is, okay? And he's going to talk about this because one of the challenges is that faith in the American context, in particular, can be taught as this checklist of beliefs that you are supposed to have okay that's how it's often taught that's how i was raised not necessarily bad but jesus is saying it's so much more than that it's it's this idea that the the christianity cannot be boiled down to a set of religious ideas it's that we have to have a reliance and a trust on him everything that we do here at redeemed church is intentional Everything that we set up and we plan is for each of you to have not a reliance on us as a church, but to have a reliance on God himself. And this is what he's saying. I don't want religion. I want people of faith. And here's how we're going to define it. This type of faith should be developed in your life and in your mind. And Jesus is going to give this illustration of how powerful faith is. I really struggle with this one. Jesus said, tell this mountain, probably pointing to the Mount of Olives, he's like this immovable object that your mind cannot even get your head around. He's pointing at this mountain. If you're a disciple, you're looking at a mountain. And he tells it to go throw yourself, literally, be uprooted, be uprooted into the sea. And he's probably pointing to the Dead Sea. He's like, look over there. That's what it looks like. It can be done by god that's what our wiring in our mind has to look like we know this sometimes but all the time we have to believe that jesus is saying god is a god of the impossible and so we have to rewire our faith to believe that He says believing prayer taps into god's power to accomplish the humanly impossible so how do we do this kind of a weird statement, right? There are two conditions that Jesus lays out. One is there has to be an absence of doubt. Getting a little uncomfortable in that chair, hopefully. An unwavering trust in God. It's not a checklist. If we live the checklist life, we completely miss it. It's rather a complete dependence and trust in God. And this is where we could get it so wrong, because we oftentimes that will be said to you, right? I, I'm very careful when I preach these things. Sometimes that's said to you, like you have to have more faith, but what Jesus is saying is that God can do the impossible, but you can't take one line out of here. And this is what I want to make sure that we're clear on. You can't take one line out of Jesus's words and say, I'm going to build a whole theology about that because what Jesus is saying is God is a God of the impossible, but he teaches us how to pray. And what does he say? The Lord's Prayer, Mark 6, 9 through 10. This then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. God is always able to respond to obedient prayers. So we pray to him all the things that we need. And at the same time, like I did this morning, like I do every morning when I, pray, when I run, I pray the Lord's Prayer and I say, align my will and my desires to what you want to happen. And all the mess and the junk and the things that I need to align to God, I pray without doubt and without fear, without, with complete faith that God is going to move a mountain into the Dead Sea. But I say, but it needs to align with your will. Okay? We have to have impossible faith when we see somebody who's struggling or we have somebody in our lives who's struggling. We know that it's going to align with God's will. God does not want people to struggle. So we pray fervently with open hearts, with complete belief that, Jesus, that God is going to turn that life around. Okay, That's what this looks like. He's then going to go further. He's going to say there's a second condition, forgiving prayer is like Mark 11:25 and when you stand praying if you hold anything against anyone if you hold anything against anyone okay forgive them so that your father in heaven may forgive your sins faith in god and forgiving attitude is how we are to pray many of us don't practice this i uh, this morning I did, okay? Because I'm preaching. <laughs> Literally, what am I holding on to? What am I holding on to? You have to get to a place where you pray with faith and you pray believing that the mountain can go into the Dead Sea, but at the same time, is there anyone that has done anything to me that I'm holding on to? Why? Because God forgave us. It has to be an equal equation, right? Right? What? God can forgive us of every wrongdoing that we have ever done, and yet somehow we're able to just hold on to it with a tight fist and like God's going to forgive me, but I don't have to do that. There have been many people in this room who have had a lot of stuff done to you. I am not making light of this. A lot of bad stuff has been done to me, and I will tell you that when you begin to forgive even if they don't receive it, even if they don't ever know, the healing comes and the faith comes and the obedience comes. Matthew six twelve, same prayer and forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven as we also have been forgiven our debtors. If you accept God's forgiveness, okay, if you accept God's forgiveness, many of you, uh, most of you in this room have. You are expected to forgive others as God forgave you. I don't want religion. Jesus, I says I don't want religion. I want faith. What does faith look like? Undoubtable trust in God. And while you're at it, quit holding all those grudges. Quit holding all that junk that's keeping you from what I truly want you to be. Jesus looks at the fig tree with green, luscious leaves, and he looks at the temple, and he says, there's no fruit here. This is not what it was meant to be. So what are we supposed to do with all this? Multiple times in the New Testament, he's going to redefine this. He's going to redefine the temple. What is the temple now? Anybody know? The temple is you all right so he's going to go after religion he's going to say i want fruit and i want faithfulness and now you're going to be the thing i'm going to go after Ooh, let's go let's look at a couple places first corinthians three sixteen through 17 we find it here don't you know that you yourself are god's temple and that god's spirit dwells in your midst? if anyone destroys God's temple. God will destroy that person for God's temple is sacred and you together are that temple. There is so much theology to unpack, but we got to get to the cookout, so we're going to (laughs) rock. Paul shifts the imagery from the idea of this building as the temple of God. And he's saying the dwelling place of God is now you. Let's end it there. Think about that. Spend the rest of the week thinking about that. The dwelling place is now you. And here, Paul actually is using you as plural. Uh Uh-oh. So Paul's saying a church as a whole is now the temple of God. That's why we have to have undoubting faith as a church. That's why we have to have complete trust and obedience towards him. And it's also why we got to forgive one another. We have to live in unity. He's going to point out because of this truth, we are supposed to live as pure representatives of God and Jesus. That's sin. And that's also any way that we do not represent Jesus the way that Jesus needs to be represented. When you say that you have the living God in you and you're not practicing the fruits of the spirit of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and fill in the blank, this is why it's so important. The spirit of God dwells in you and he dwells in us. When you come in here, that means that something spiritual is happening. If you come in here and you're like, the songs didn't really do it. Kurt, you're kind of annoying. I've heard that. Don't worry. I've heard it multiple times. Won't hurt my feelings. <laughs> if you come with your personal agenda, you miss what Paul's saying. Don't you know that you are the temple? Jesus came and overturned anything that didn't point people to God. He's like, I'm, you're not using this as shortcuts. You're not frauding people. You're not lying. You're not cheating. You're not stealing. You're not doing anything. And now it's us. And Jesus is saying, I want my church to look like this. We are now the temple and the God's Spirit dwells in us, so we build one another up. We see this co- same concept later in Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 6.19. Do you not know that your bodies are temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. The Holy Spirit dwells in you. Again, he's saying it. Now, the context here is very important. He's saying this to keep yourself pure he's like don't look like the temple in jesus's day it wasn't pure here because i want to make sure that we're clear here he's talking about sexual sin first corinthians 6 when he says this he's talking about sexual sin there is something significant about sexual sin it's why we root it out okay it's why we root it out It's why we repent when it happens and we move together from it okay but he also gives us a list because the letter is like this right so right before in first corinthians 6 he also says this he's like you have believers that are suing one another you have believers that are cheating one another you have them disputing with one another and then he asks this or do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of god do not be deceived neither the sexually immoral nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanders, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you are. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of God. You are a living temple. You have the spirit of God dwelling in you. This is not a long list of things that now we have to just like muscle our way to not do. We rather say, I find my identity as the, a temple of the Holy spirit. And now I'm so repulsed by those things, but many of them in the Corinthians church and maybe even in our churches, can come in and they can stay greedy. They can say cheating. They can say disputing. They can come in as drunkards. They can come out as slanders. They can keep living the way that they are living and then say, I'm also this. And he's saying, I don't want religion. I want faith. All right. So we repent of those things. We repent, we repent, we repent, we repent. I'm the pastor. I repent daily. Okay there's stuff that we do to one another there's stuff that we do that is outside the will of god and i say lord i am a living temple root out all the stuff that does not look like you because i want to be a representative of the kingdom of god i want to look like a fig tree with leaves and you pull it back and it's a a big old juicy fig Amen? amen this is one of the greatest truths that we can miss some of us not pointing figures, some of us, myself included, we can go to religious services. We totally can. You can rock as much air one in your radio and your car as you want. Seriously. You can pray occasionally. You can look like a big leafy green tree. Your family's all in order. You got everything going, and Jesus is like, I'm going to pull back just a little bit, and I don't even find buds. Is that true? Could that actually be true? If it was true in Jesus' day, it could be true today. Our job as church leaders is to call you out on that, to call myself out on that. To get better every day. Are we going to fall short? Yes. Are we going to need to repent? Yes. Are we going to say something to someone that offends them? Yes. I think I did it yesterday. I probably need to put that on my list. And to say, forgive me and forgive others. And so when someone is just kind of just having a hard time with faith, we come together and we lift them up. And we say, God is the God of the immovable. You are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Let's start living like it. The Holy Spirit lives in you, not in the elders, not in me. I mean, yes, in the elders and in me, not just in the elders and not just in me. That was a bad theology that scrapped that on the the video. Not just in us, in all of us, plural. All of us, plural. And when we start operating like the temple of God, we're moving and shaking. Amen? All right, band, you come on up. You can go through the motions. We can all go through the motions. In every area, you can go through the motions. You can go to the gym, and you can go through the motions and never actually lift a weight. Am I right? God desires us to move away from looking like just a big leafy green plant or a big mighty temple is like, I want to see faith moving in this congregation. That's my prayer, right? So let's pray. Heavenly Father, don't let us take this lightly. For some of us, this message can go in one ear and out the other. Don't let that happen, Lord. Let your Holy Spirit convict and encourage where it needs to. Lord, if we understand this concept that we are the temples of the living God, that he is active through each one of us, it changes everything that we do, everything that we say, every way we treat one another. So, Lord, I pray, Lord, that this would just set into our hearts, that we would have a deep understanding of this. Jesus, you were so passionate About these two stories. And Lord, it reveals to us how passionate you are for us as your living temples. Lord, anybody that falls short of this, Lord, I pray that they would be encouraged, that they would be lifted up in Jesus' name, that your Holy Spirit would be encouraging them and, and lifting them up. And Lord, I just pray. Yeah, I I pray for anybody that's holding unforgiveness in their heart. It hit me like a ton of bricks this week as I was studying this word that you not only tell us to have faith without doubt, but in this faith equation, forgiving one another is so important. So I'm going to spend a little bit of prayer time. I did this this morning. Holy Spirit, reveal any anyone that maybe someone just needs to forgive in their heart. It might come as the weirdest, smallest little thing it did for me. Like a name came up that I didn't even know that I was really holding something against them. And and then I understood and God taught me and we moved on. God, some of us deal with uh, faith because um, family of origin or having control issues or watching bad things happen to us and we think, why would I have faith? But I pray that you would begin to heal people that have had trouble with doubt or trouble with control or trouble with belief that they would experience your presence right now, that through your Holy Spirit, that they would begin to heal. And Lord, as a church, that we would love each other in unity so that we can look like your holy temple where the Spirit of God is just dwelling in our midst. Lord, I pray that, Lord, that your presence would be dwelling in our midst right now.